All right, we're going to be in uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapters uh, 14 through 16, verse, chapter 16, verse 17. Um, some of this will be review from two weeks ago, and then uh, some of it will carry us forward. So let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Father, we are um, just a grateful people as we recognize your generosity towards us, your kindness, um, your mercies, and we pray that we would reflect that in the way we live, in the things we do, and even this morning as we uh, hear your word, that we'd also heed what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we've talked about this before, it's been a while, but um, uh, I'm not, I don't know Latin, just to be clear, so I'm going to sound like I do, but I don't. Um, does, it, does anyone know what the word quorum deo means? I guess words, I guess those are two words in Latin. So deo would be what? Uh, close, no. God, right? Yep. So God, and then quorum apparently means before the face of or in the face of or something like that, right? So R.C. Sproul, who um, is now in heaven but um, knew Latin and I would assume knows Latin still, wrote this. Uh, this phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. So um, how does this apply to some of what we've been seeing in Deuteronomy? How would you think this concept would apply? Living before the face of God. Where are the people about to go? Into the promised land, right? And has God been with them in the wilderness? Yes. Um, So why is he taking them into a land? For their good. He promised it to them. Right, um, the whole. I mean, you think about it from from start to finish. We talked about this a couple times, but you kind of have this idea of God's people in God's place under God's rule. Right, you had that with Adam and Eve, and when they rebel against God's rule, they get kicked out of God's place. Right, um, but God is still with His people throughout the whole storyline. Those those are who who are His people. This doesn't mean God is not everywhere. God is everywhere. Just like I said, it was He with them in the wilderness. Yes, He was with them in the wilderness. But there's a special sense. So, so even when they're in the wilderness, let's back up for a second. They build the tabernacle. What's the significance of that? Well, first of all, God tells them to build it. They don't just decide, hey, we're going to build this tabernacle. But God tells them to build this tabernacle. And the way they're going to camp is they're all going to be around the tabernacle. In other words, it's the central point. Why? Yeah, God's special presence, his blessing presence among his people that they could draw near to him through sacrifice and not be consumed by his wrath but yet have his blessing presence among them. That was the point of that, right? So really this whole storyline is about God's people being in God's place under God's perfect rule and enjoying all that that brings, right? But with their sin, that's got to be dealt with, and so that's why we have sacrifice and all this stuff. So bringing them into the land is what, in, under the old covenant, is what he's going to do, right? Um, he's going to bring them into this land, and then in this land, um, he's going to, and, the, and the, part of the reason I bring this up is in, these, in the chapters 14 through 16, over and over again, there's a repeated phrase of, um, let me see if I can find it real quick, but it's basically uh, to the place where the Lord will choose to make his name dwell, something to that effect. It says it over and over again, uh, because they're about to go into the land, and eventually they're going to build a temple in the land where God tells them to. Right, and so the people that's going to be representative, and and even a unique actual reality of God dwelling among His people in a blessing way, and then being able to draw near to Him through sacrifice through His ways, right? That's really what's what's going on there. Um, so is God everywhere? Yes, God is everywhere. When we say life before the face of God, it does remind us, and it should even remind unbelievers that they live before the face of God. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He sees everything. Right? So that should put a fear in the hearts of unbelievers and even in his children, a certain sense of respectful awe and fear. Right? Kind of like your, your father seeing everything you're doing. Right? Um, but here we're talking, we're, we're kind of even narrowing it down and saying the people of Israel need to know what is it going to be like for us to live in this special presence of God in his place in the land. Because they're about to go in the land. And that's what Moses is, is reiterating. 
through bringing back that the covenant and reminding this new generation, the Ten Commandments and all these other things, specifically about now applying it to what's it going to look like when we get in the land, okay? So what's it going to look like to live before the face of God in the place of God, in, in his place that he set aside for them? Um, so as we're looking through chapters 14 through most of 16 here in this section, um, well, before this, we saw uh, he, he zoomed in on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was kind of like the big picture of what it's going to look like. But now he's zooming in on the details of the Mosaic Covenant uh, that was given to the generation prior and still applies to this generation about what it's going to look like. And so a couple things we see about living before the face of God under the Old Covenant here are these things. We're going to see it means to be holy and set apart to the Lord. There's something unique. You're not to look like the pagan nations around you. You're going to be holy and set apart. Um, the, they're going to have a, a place, there's going to be a place of God's special blessing presence I just, had already mentioned that, but 10 times in the section that we're looking at, it talks about that special place where God's going to make his name dwell. Um, living before the face of God means they must obey God. Um, the, it's not so much that the word obey gets repeated over and over again, but what happens is throughout this section, commands are given. And when God commands something, what are we supposed to do? Just take it as a suggestion. Do it. We do it, right? We obey. So obedience is part of what it means to live before the face of God under the old covenant. And um, the other things are the kind of some results of this, God's blessing them. As they live as his people in his presence, his way, there's blessing that comes. Uh, and then part of that blessing is they will rejoice. So God blessing them appears nine times in this section. Uh, them rejoicing appears four times in this section. So that's really what we're seeing here. Um, now, as New Covenant believers, um, the principles really haven't changed. All those things we mentioned are still true. Maybe the way they get lived out is going to look different. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not the nation, national people of God, right? The, the church is the new people of God. I think there's still a place for Israel. He's, he's going to come back. He's going to bring them into the land one day, right, in the Millennial Kingdom. I think that's true. Um, but, but we're not under the old covenant. But, but still, God has not changed. His people still must be holy and set apart. So even though may, some of it's going to look different, um, the principles are still going to really remain the same. So let's look at today's passage. We're going to see what he says for, for these people as they're about to enter the land. We'll make application to us as new covenant believers. So we're going to pick up in chapter 14, and that's, really main, that's all going to be review as well as a little bit into 15 because that's how far we got uh, last time we were looking at Deuteronomy. So I'm going to move pretty quick through these first sections, but I do want to review it. So the first point is there are people set apart to the Lord. Uh, they're supposed to be distinct from the world. Look at uh, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, just a reminder here, how is Israel described in this section? What are some things that are used to describe Israel? Holy people. Holy people. So the idea of holiness is set apart for God's glory, right? Set apart to God for his glory. What else? Chosen, right? They're chosen by God. Out of all the nations, they were a chosen people, right? In fact, the fact that they are a nation was because God made them out of Abraham, right? Um, what else? Treasured possession. treasured possession, right? So we see God's delight of them, that there's a unique valuing. Does, does God love all people? Yes, but there's a unique treasured version of love for his people. We see that over and over again. That's, that's a new covenant reality too. Um, so the point is that, that they are set apart. There's something unique about them. They are set apart to God. We could summarize it that way, which means they're to be different from the nations around them. They're going into this area. There's going to be a bunch of pagan people who worship false gods. God is going to uh, remove these people as, it's a, uh, as judgment on them, right? And salvation, blessing for his people. We see that again throughout the whole storyline of the Bible too, by the way. Salvation and judgment, right? Salvation comes even through judgment. That's even true in the new covenant, isn't it? Your salvation comes through what? Not God sweeping sin under the rug through judgment. The flood. Salvation is going to come through the waters of judgment. I mean, you see, it's, this pattern just gets repeated over and over again throughout the, the scriptures. 
Okay, so um, one thing that means is in verse 3, we're not going to read through this whole section, I'll just read part of verse 3 here. Uh, you shall not eat any abomination. And then it goes on and talks about clean and unclean things to eat. This is our, We've already seen this earlier in the Pentateuch. We looked at that um, when we were looking through the earlier books. So I won't really hammer this home, but the overall idea is they must be set apart, which includes even the, the foods they're going to eat are going to be making them distinct, set apart to God. They're not going to engage in um, you know, pagan feasts, which means they're not going to have fellowship uh, with these pagans. Um, they're going to be set apart to God. Um, so as new covenant people, does any of this apply to us? Yes and no, right? Okay, so are, who, who are we? Identity-wise, does any of this apply to us? Well, we're not Israel, but think about what Peter says about the church, right? You're a holy people. You are set apart to God, right? Um, a people to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's, that was the purpose of, of Israel during their, the Old Covenant. Um, so we certainly see that identity things, there's still a uniqueness of God's people in the new covenant that they belong to him. Therefore, they must live in line with what he says. They should not live the way the pagans do around them, right? They have to look different. They have to look, uh, and they don't look different just to look different, by the way. This isn't like, go pick out the weirdest clothes you can just so you look different. Um, in fact, sometimes that can just be drawing attention to yourself, right? Um, but, but it does mean something for even, even in what we would wear. I mean, it does. We shouldn't look like the pagans, right? Um, and their celebrations of various sins. So, um, so that's true. Now, what about our dietary laws? Do we, do we have to observe those? Well, yes or no? No, we don't, right? That's pretty clear. Um, Jesus in uh, the Gospel of Mark, we're told, um, deals with that issue. Uh, Acts chapter 10 deals with that issue. Um, and I think this, this makes sense. As the new covenant comes, it's now a go and tell. that The Messiah has come. Before it was come to Israel, we're waiting on the Messiah, come to Israel, the new covenant comes that was promised in the old covenant. He says there's going to be a new covenant. It comes. Jesus comes. Salvation is here. Now what? Great commission. Go tell. So this is going to all the nations. So these food laws are not going to be part of this covenant because there, there's now going to be a, the people of God are made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? Um, okay. So that, that part it changes. Um, because we have a new covenant. Okay, so now let's move on to the next section. Again, this is still review. I know we're going through this fast, um, but it's because we looked at this last time. Uh, the second thing I would say we see is a giving people. Uh, the people living before the face of God in, in the old covenant were to be a giving people, specifically relying on God and joyful in their giving. Um, there were two tithes that were mentioned here that we looked at last time. One of them was uh, sanctuary or temple tithe. They were to, to give 10%. Tithe just means 10%. They were to give 10%. And it was to be um, used related to the temple. And then every third year, they were to take another tithe, which was for the poor among them. And that one was to stay in their own community and be used to meet the needs of the landless individuals. Land is a pretty big deal in the Old Covenant for multiple reasons. One of them is survival. Um, but there are certain people that would, could end up landless, right? So who are some of those people? Do you guys remember any people that could... Um, be, we could say landless, or and we could also say vulnerable to poverty and other things. But what would be some of those people? Who? Levites. I missed that. What? Say it one more time. Levites. Levites. Yes, that's right. Who else? Widows. Widows. Orphans. Orphans. Yep. Fatherless. That's right. Um, sojourners are even mentioned. Right. We have sojourners mentioned. Those who would come and they would live among Israel. Um, so they, they would too would fit in that category. Okay, so um, how does all this apply to us? Do we still have an obligation to give to the Lord's work like they did to the temple? Yes. Is there a 10% requirement? I would say no. Um, I understand some people may have a conviction that that's true. I'm not saying 10% is a bad place to give. I think that's, that's fine. And, you know, in my mind, that often is a starting point when I consider what I'm giving you know, to the church and then above and beyond that. 10% can be a good starting point. Um, but what does it say in uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7? God loves a cheerful giver. That seems to be the new covenant standard. Um, a cheerful giving, which could be 10%. 10% may, may be inadequate for some. Um, it may be more than some can give. But the point is, we're to give recognizing. It's kind of the same principle they had. Everything you have comes from God. And when we give... We're just reflecting the generosity God has shown to us. So we should be able to do it with joy, right? 
Because think about it, if I, if I give anything, all that does is show God was generous to me. That's really what it shows. So I should be able to do that joyfully. And so I think the same principle, even if the exact 10% doesn't apply to us, um, would still be there. And so we need to be cheerful givers, and I would even say generous cheerful givers, right? Sacrificial givers, um, specifically for the Lord's work through our local congregation, uh, through other missionaries you might support outside of that on your own. Um, there are, and you know, even through certain forms of poverty relief. I would encourage you to focus mainly on Christian ministries that are doing that, because I do think our primary role is, is to, to do good to all, but especially to the household of God. There are brothers and sisters. You start with your family, right? Because like Paul says, if, you don't, if, if someone doesn't take care of their family, they're worse than an unbeliever. You've got to start there. Um, that doesn't mean that we, if, uh, we we've, especially in our country, we are so blessed that many of us should have the ability to you know, meet other needs as well. Um, but we want to be wise in that because um, just giving can um, hurt, especially I think in, it's kind of a side note, but in, in a society where populations are bigger and we know people around us less, it does get harder to give in a way that actually helps rather than hurts. In other words, just throwing money doesn't fix problems, right? That's not, now, money though often is going to be needed as part of the solution. So we don't go the other extreme and say, well, you know, just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, fix your problems here. Um, but I do think it gets a little more difficult. So we need to be really wise. We need to ask for God's help, right? And uh, we should be trying to engage with people that are different than us, that, that may have needs that we don't. And as a church family, we have a benevolence policy where we try to live this out uh, together, make it a little bit um, easier to live it out. Certainly other ways you could apply that. But the point is, uh, I think the giving principle of people who are giving, that, that is what it looks like to live before the face of God. Because God is generous towards his people. If I live before his face, I then want to reflect that. Does that make sense? Okay, um, so any, any thoughts on that? We're going we're gonna to move into one more section that's kind of review, but it's also transitioning into the new section we haven't covered. But any thoughts or questions on any of that so far? All right, good. It was just all review. You already knew it. All right, let's talk about a forgiving and merciful people. So um, after just talking about the poor and needy, he transitions to talk about the poor who would end up in debt specifically. So verses one through six, he talks about the sabbatical year, this um, every seven years, a release of debts. So let's read that, verse one of chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So at the end of every seven years, there's this idea of a release. You also re recognize, I think um, part of the reason this is there um, is because what, what else, besides them releasing, we're going to talk about the word release in a minute, but releasing these debts, um, what else happens on the seventh year according to, um, I don't remember if it's Exodus... Dude, I don't remember exactly where the law is spelled out, but yeah, so, so the, the ground is to have a rest, right? They're to let the, let the ground lay fallow in the seventh year. So this is a sign of trust, isn't it? You're, I mean, you're a farmer. Again, it's not like we're just shipping in produce from Costa Rica or something into Israel, right? So you're a farmer. You have to store up these things, and this, you, that seventh year, it rests. You're kind of living off what you had, and then you got to plant stuff, and you got to wait for all that to come after the end of the seventh year. So you see, this is a exercise and trust that God's going to be the one to provide their needs. Um, there's also probably practical reasons for letting the ground lay fallow too, right? I mean, there's some wisdom in that. So they're to do this. Um, and it mentions here a couple times, the Lord will bless you. You saw that, right? At least twice in this short section. And like I said, this gets repeated over and over again in this section. This is part of the reason they're to be ready to give this release. And I would say even let the land lay fallow. Let's talk about the word release real quick. Um, it's literally the idea of letting go. It's repeated five times in verses one through nine. We didn't read all the way down to verse nine, but it, it gets repeated five times. Um, it can refer to two different things that are directly related. One is it can refer to a full release and forgiveness. 
In other words, a complete relinquishment, a you know signing off, hey, debt is done, it's canceled, it's paid in full. It can also refer to the a postponement in repayments. So like a pause in repaying stuff. Um, now, the question is, what does it mean here? Um, I mean, commentators kind of say both things here, so it's not super clear. Uh, I'm gonna tell you what I think is clear in a minute, but let me just for a second say, um, I do kind of lean towards a um, postponement being required. I think it can't be less than that. It has to at least be postponement, postponement on repayments at least, bottom, you know, bottom level, with the idea probably of full forgiveness being strongly encouraged, but maybe not required. Part of the reason I say that is because when you get down to verse 12, it is, it's going to deal with fellow Israelites that end up in debtor's enslavement. So think about it this way. You can't pay off your debts. They don't just throw you in prison, like maybe debtor's prison you know, in England back in the whatever time frame that was. But you would have to work off your debt. And so in, in my mind, reconciling those two things, it seems to me that the easiest way to fit those together would be to say there's probably a postponement, which would certainly at least deal with that ground laying fallow for se- on the seventh year, right? There, so the idea is if they can't work, then you've got to have that postponement. But the, at some point, um, they would then come back, because otherwise you can't really end up with someone in, in debtor's enslavement if everything is fully forgiven every seven years. That's what I'm saying. Um, and also this enslavement thing that's going to get talked about later, it says they're to work for six years, and it, it's not tied to the Sabbath year as to when they get released. They actually work six years, and then they can get released. Now, um, there could be there are there are other ways to understand that. So I, uh, but here's what is clear. Let me tell you what's very clear. What's very clear is this is a call for mercy and generosity, because God is going to provide for their needs, and God has been merciful and generous to them. I think that is clear. This is not a, you know, me me gimme gimme gimme. Now, would these payments be due to them? Yes, right. So it's it's not it's not saying that. Um, it's not owed to these people. It is, but we're talking about generosity. We're talking about mercy, things like that, um, which is a call to live in, by faith again, isn't it? Because it, let's say even if it's just the one-year pause on repayments or if it's a full forgiveness, like completely paid, um, is that free? Is there such a thing as a free lunch? Right? Right? It costs somebody something. It costs somebody something, right? Um, that's economics 101, right? So um, in this case, who does it cost? Yeah, the lender, right? The person who lent it is absorbing the cost, even if it's just for that one year, or whether it is a permanent writing off of the debt, they have to absorb it, which shows, number one, uh, I think the reason they do that is because they re- realize they've received mercy from God. Everything they have, they didn't deserve. Um, but number two, I, I think it is this idea that um, you're trusting God. And I think that's why it says, for the Lord will bless you. The Lord is going to bless you in the land. He is going to provide for what you need. That's an act of trust. Um, one application we made is um, forgiveness of sins. When somebody sins against you, you realize forgiveness is the same idea as releasing a debt. They owe you something because they have hurt you in some way. It may not be monetary, right? And the hurt may be something that they really can't actually physically repay, but rather than holding it over somebody, there's a releasing when they repent and ask for that forgiveness. I will not continue to hold this against you. Does that cost you something? Yes. There's a sense in which you're absorbing the pain of that sin against you. Why can you do that? Because you're trusting that God is just that he's, he's going to deal with every sin. No sin will be overlooked. If they're a Christian, that sin is punished in Christ. I'm not going to go demanding that Christ's payment wasn't enough. God, this isn't just. We need more payment. No, Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, bore the penalty if they're a Christian. If they're not, they'll bear it in hell, won't they? But the point is, God is still just. I can trust him for that. And I can trust him because he's shown me mercy. So that can overflow in generosity towards others in forgiving them. So when people are repenting and asking for forgiveness as Christians, this is one of the reasons, even in the New Testament, it says, if, if you're not willing to forgive, you probably should wonder if you've actually been forgiven. You need to think that through, right? Because those who have been forgiven are ready to forgive others. Now, I understand we all struggle with that at times, right? But the reality is we, we have to keep struggling. We don't just give up and say, well, I'm not going to forgive. We say, God, I want to forgive. This is really hard. Help me to forgive, right? 
and then maybe you keep talking it through. Maybe you even involve someone like a pastor or a trusted Christian friend to help you work it out. But the point is you want to move towards forgiveness, right? Um, and uh, we, yeah, I'll leave it there. We could go into other, other things too. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean everything always goes exactly the same, by the way, right? I mean, someone does something violent against you or something, right? There can be um, consequences that will still carry on, but there can be forgiveness even in that. So well, there's whole books written on that topic. You can pick up one on forgiveness. But the point is, um, Ephesians 4.32 in the New Covenant says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I think that's the call. Right? As we've been forgiven, we've been shown generosity and mercy, we should be ready to do the same. Well, the next section that is still in this section right here, the next thing we see in verses 7 through 11 is giving and loaning with a generous heart. Look at verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. Okay, so I want you to listen for attitudes as I read through this, okay? Listen to the attitudes that are mentioned here. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse nine, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not uh, be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land therefore I command you you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy and the poor in your land okay so what attitudes get repeated or what different attitudes get mentioned what was it Mercy and grace. yes yeah grace I think it's generosity maybe I heard over here yeah, so you the idea of don't close your hand, open your hand, don't close your heart, open your heart, don't look grudgingly, right? I think we could say the opposite would be kind of like look graciously, right? Um, so we see those things repeated, right? Don't harden, um, open your hand, don't look grudgingly, you shall give freely, um, you shall open widely. So those, I mean, that, get, that comes out in verses 7 through 11. At least one time in each of those verses, something like that attitude gets mentioned. Um, so the idea is they must be generous and not stingy. And this brings up a question that was asked at the end of last time we met was, well, how does the seventh year fit into this? Are they going to sometimes be tempted to say, I don't want to give? And the answer is yes. And God knew that, which is why he said, don't do that, right? The seventh year is coming. Don't think that. Now this could be an argument for full release of debts. That could be one of the reasons, well, why wouldn't you give if it's, you know, well, because you don't want to give full release of a debt after you just gave the loan one, you know, you only collected interest on it for half a year or something. Uh, but, you know, it also would still apply the other way, I think, because even if it's only one year, you give someone a loan and then immediately for the whole first year, you can't collect anything on that. That's still a tough spot too, right? Um, so I don't think it necessarily has to go one way or another. But the point is generous, not stingy. Um, and I think remembering that in faith that God is going to supply your needs. Again, the, the God's going to bless you. That came out in here. God will provide your needs. So you can, you can be willing to be generous. Uh, real quick, another question that may come up. Does verse 11 contradict verse 4? Verse 4 said, but there will be no poor among you. Verse 11 says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Um, I don't think this is a contradiction. Um, I think that's pretty obvious because it's in the same paragraph, essentially. Um, just because these authors lived longer ago didn't mean they were not logical, right? You recognize that? Um, but uh, also, verse, verse 5 says, immediately after, there will be no poor among you, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord. Um, and then it goes on to talk about the fact that there's going to be poor, which probably assumes, rightly so, that they do not strictly keep the word of the Lord. And in fact, that is actually Israel's history, isn't it? Um, a lot of the prophets get onto them because you did not lend to your brothers. You exacted high interest from your brothers. You were not generous. You know, it just goes through all these different ways that they disobeyed all the stuff we're seeing here in Deuteronomy. Um, so I think that there are other ways to also look at that, but I think that's that's a valid way to understand that's not a contradiction. Ben, I got a question. Yeah. Uh, in verse 9, it seems to indicate that it's everybody in Israel on the seventh year. Uh, say it one more time. So take care, lest there be an unworthy thought. Uh, seventh year. So what's your question? Well, is, does that pertain to the land too? Like if you... Does everybody in Israel on the seventh year, everybody on a, a seventh year, not do their land, or is it 
depend on when you start the loan or... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it is, my understanding is that it's a set, like everybody's observing it the same seventh year was my understanding. Um, how would they... And I can't, I mean, I'm not going to, I haven't thought about it. Here in the land, how would they survive if they... Right. Some of them were still farming. Yeah. That's just a practical thing. Right, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is they have to depend on God to provide. Um, now, there were people living in the land as they came into the land, right? So that's part of the reason even God's not going to push them all out right away was so the land would not just become overgrown with wild animals and, you know, weeds and stuff. So that could be part of the solution. But that's a good question. Yeah, do you have an answer? They were allowed to eat what volunteered. They were allowed to say it one more time? To eat what volunteered. When, even okay, yeah. If a crop's on a piece of land, it's going to volunteer some stuff. Some stuff may come up from the previous harvest and other things. Yeah, so that could be part of it too. Um, and yeah, and they, they certainly had some animals, right, as well to live off of. But it's, I mean, it's a good question. I do think over and over again, though, what you're seeing is God's going to bless you. God's going to provide for you. So yeah, a lot of this stuff really is living by faith. I mean, even the sacrificial system is that way. We talked about this when we looked in um, Leviticus. Sacrificing a cow is a pretty expensive offering, especially when it was a burnt offering. In other words, you're not really going to eat it that, in that particular type of offering. Um, so if you don't really believe that there is the one true God and you are guilty of sin and you deserve death and the only way to draw near to his happy blessing presence is through sacrifice, like he said, you're probably not really going to make that sacrifice or at least want to, but you have to do it by faith, Right. So, I mean, the whole, whole of the Bible seems to keep going in that direction. Um, does somebody else have a hand up? Yeah. Well, I, I think if we look at the year of Jubilee, there were seven sevens. Uh -huh. So then that would say that it was a, a calendar yep. Sabbath that everyone had to observe. That's right. And we look at this, and they were given, they were in the desert when they got, or in the wilderness when they got this decree. They were already receiving manna. Right, yep. When they got cranky quail. <laughs> um, you know, so they could see the provision of the Lord. Yep. But unfortunately, by the time of the captivity, the Lord says, "You never obey one of my Sabbaths." Right. That's right. Yeah. They don't. They don't end up keeping these uh, the land rest, do they? And that's part of the reason he kicks them out. Come, they never saw them come through on the Sabbath rest. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they. Yep. You're right. Okay. Good stuff. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about the the second kind of subpoint here is how those indebtors enslavement should be handled. Look at verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold, um, could also be sells himself, but the point is, in this context, I think, they end up having to be sold or selling themselves into a form of repayment enslavement, right? In other words, I'm working for you till I pay off this debt, or you, you paid off my debt, now I'm going to work for you. Um, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore uh, I command you this today. Okay, so two things. What are the two reasons they're supposed to um, send them out? with a lot of goods whenever it's time for their enslavement to end. Did you pick up on that? We just, is in the last verse or two we just read. He gives two reasons. Because you were a slave. Because you were a slave in Egypt, right? So God's saying, my people are not going to be enslaved that way again by one another or anything like that, right? Um, you know something of what it's like to be enslaved and, and need to be freed. What was the other thing? We've kind of been hammering it home a couple times here. You'll be blessed, right? God is, is blessing you. Um, Verse 16, but if he says to you, the slave says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, ouch, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go. So going back to the one that you might release, when you let him go free from you for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So in the context, I think this is talking about enslavement related to bankruptcy of some sort. Um, the ESV study Bible says slavery in Israel was therefore a short-term measure to help self-employed peasant farmers who could not pay their debts. Thus, a rich landowner who offered a bankrupt peasant guaranteed employment and support until the sabbatical year or the seventh year uh, was valued. Taking on such a slave was viewed as an act of charity. Um, so after six years, they, they're released, and are they to go empty-handed? No, they're to be supplied liberally. Uh, why, why is that? We are talking about one reason, because God's going to bless you. You can trust him. He's already provided abundantly for you. What else? Something to live on. Yeah, 
So, so part of the goal is God is showing generosity through his people to other people in the, in the land. If you sent them out with nothing, what's probably going to happen? They'll probably be right back, right? Um, so this is God's design for Israel in the way they're going to do it. Now, this, be careful here. This doesn't directly translate to modern nation states. But as the people of God, this attitude of generosity, right? This attitude of compassion that seeks to understand the needs of people, especially fellow Christians, right? Um, but even as we have opportunity, the unbelievers that we come in contact with, um, we need to understand that heart is still there, right? And somehow it needs to get worked out in our daily life. Um, so I think um, we see this idea of liberally supplying them. Um, what else? There was one more thing here. Oh, the passages like this, just to be very clear, do not support um, the modern versions of slavery that we, we have. Uh, man-stealing slavery, going, kidnapping people into slavery against their will, right, is explicitly prohibited in Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, the penalty for man-stealing is death. If you go and steal somebody, right, like was done in the slave trade in our country's early history, the penalty, biblically speaking, under the old covenant would have been death because you essentially take that person's life from them. So it's, it's a capital crime under the old covenant, okay? So just to be clear, we're not talking about that. And it's clear from this passage even, I mean, it's clear from Deuteronomy as a whole because like I said, this is Deuteronomy, it's gonna say no man stealing. Uh, but it's also clear from this passage because why? Six years, it's to pay off the debt and then you supply them liberally and you send them out. And if they want to stay because they're well supplied, so again, the picture here is not of beating they're a piece of property, right? There is a, um, there can be this loving relationship where they're being so well cared for that they say, this is better than my self-employed version I had before where I'm likely to fall back into poverty um, and I'd rather stay here and stay on staff here, right? Stay as a bond servant here. And so I think that was, that's kind of what you have going on. Even in verse 18, it says, you, you have half the wages of a hired worker. Right. Yeah, I think partially because their, their food and stuff is being cared for as well, right? Um, but yeah, that's good. So do we have the same release specifications? Uh, I'm not arguing that in our economic or national setting that we have the exact same release things, right? If, um, if a bank makes a loan, we're all of a sudden demanding that in the seventh year they don't collect interest or something. I mean, things are, are certainly different. Uh, and, and the nation is not the same. In Israel, the nation is a theocracy. They're, they are, as a nation to be the people of God, brothers and sisters in that way. That's not necessarily the same in, in our nation. Um, but we still need to have a, a generous love, especially for fellow believers. First John three sixteen and 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart. So that's exactly what Deuteronomy, same attitude. Don't close your heart, right? Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? So we need to emulate God's generosity and mercy, right? Okay, uh, next, um, a people that realizes everything belongs to God. Um, well, let me ask you this first of all. Do you want to have any other questions or thoughts on that section? Because we covered a lot there. The, the big picture, just to remind you, was um, a forgiving and merciful people. We're going to go a lot faster through these last two because we've already covered them earlier. Yeah? Um, I don't see any division on the poor who maybe were lazy. Right, yeah. We would divide there. Right. They don't deserve any help. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, so in one sense, no, no help is deserved. It's all going to be mercy. We recognize that, right? And so um, when I'm going to show mercy to somebody, that initial offering of mercy is not necessarily connected to you've made yourself worthy before I show you mercy, Right. I'll show mercy, but you're right that a pattern of persistent laziness, Paul calls out and says, we don't, giving this person and giving and giving is not helping because the goal is that they're going to do what God wants them to do, which is stop being lazy and start providing for their own needs, right? Um, so this takes a lot of wisdom, which is why, you know, you really have to get more personally involved. Um, I'm trying to remember that book, World and Everything, and it recommends it. Anyway, I can't remember. There's, there's some, some good books out there on thinking through Christian relief, um, Someone know what it was called? Okay, yeah, I've read that book, When Helping Hurts. Yes, that's a good one. Um, there's another one. Uh, man, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, if, if you want to know, ask me and I'll look it up. But yeah, When Helping Hurts is a good one. Um, so um, 
Yes, but I, I do think that probably gets worked out in, in some form or fashion, right? Um, if nothing else, the person probably continues to end up living indebted to other people and having problems. At some point, maybe they get publicly called out for the sin. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what all happens with that. But I, but I mean, Proverbs speaks against laziness over and over again, right? And then the, the consequences that come from that. Um, we do recognize that, you know, some people end up in, in poverty not directly because of their laziness. We recognize that too. I think that, that certainly happens. Um, so it, it takes wisdom to discern what is actually going to help the, this person, right? And that's going to look different depending on what's going on in their life. Yeah? How, how did they come up, God come up with the idea of seven? I mean, why not four like the Olympics? Or, you yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah. You know, four, I, ten, fifteen. Has anything been written about why seven? Why seven, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so he created in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. I think it's probably patterned after that. Now, you could ask the question, why did he do it that way? Because he didn't have to do it that way, right? I mean, he could have created in um, zero seconds, essentially. I mean, he could. I mean, he didn't have to to do it that way. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, they. I'm wondering if they didn't realize since Moses had already written about um, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob served for seven years and was yeah. cheated and cheated and cheated. Yeah. For three sevens, you know, yeah. three periods of seven years. Yeah. That may have been in their minds, as they say, you know, don't don't act like that. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yes. Um, applying this, you know, we, we have a responsibility, kind of going along with what Grace is saying, uh, people in our community who may or may not be. Um, affiliated with the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, I assume the benevolence fund is primarily for mm-hmm. church members. Yeah. I mean, not maybe not exclusively, but that's correct. Yep. So, um, not really knowing the church's budget or whatever, and, and going along with what you said about you know you should be careful about which maybe agencies that feed the homeless that sure. we want to contribute to. Does the church? Do that? Do they make a contribution to an organization that they trust in to help the community? And so that when we give our money, right, we could say we could in our mind say, well, we are helping because sure. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so we, we don't give to any local. We don't give to any local, you know, organization that directly does that. So part of what's gotten hard is um, the government has taken on such a role that used to be filled by local communities. And, and I think maybe there were some good intentions. I mean, I don't know what all the intentions were, but there have been some bad consequences to that, I think, regardless of what the intentions were, um, which is when you take it out of local community settings where people actually know each other and then seek to meet each other's needs, and you have churches as a first line of defense for some people. Well, really, families, extended families, neighbors, churches. Um, it gets harder to help effectively um, because... The, and this is that book, I can't remember the name. Um, Effective Compassion? There's, I don't know if that's the name of the book, but that, you're right, that's the connection. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. He's, I don't know, World, World News Group, anyway. Um, he's done a lot for them, but uh, Effective Compassion or something. And he has like five different things that after researching a lot, what is it that actually helps people? And a lot of it is personal ministry. And ministry that involves um, some sort of getting to know them and then setting up certain things that you're going to help them accomplish by making it to where they've got to contribute to this. Not money, because they don't have any money, but, but you, you know, I'm going to help you. We're not just saying, hey, figure it out. Good luck with your problem. We're saying, no, you need help. But it's not helpful for just to throw money, which tends to be what a lot of government programs end up doing. Probably not all of them, right? But, but certainly you're going to find more of that when the government gets involved, because that's just the way government is. Everything's got to be, we have a policy for that, but you're dealing with people. And I understand we need policies when you start dealing with taxpayer money, but maybe it shouldn't be taxpayer money as much as it is communities. Um, but I mean, but that's compounded by the fact that we're so individualistic, and some of that could be tied to maybe the way the government's responded, that how many people in our community feel a responsibility to care for their neighbors? Well, go to the government. They'll take care of it. Go here. They'll take care of it. So now it's kind of like you're in this cycle, you know, and it's it's hard, so I'm not pretending to have an answer, but 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 uh, yeah, okay. 
I would just say, yeah, be, be thoughtful about when you give to those things. Children's Hunger Fund, uh, they're not local necessarily, but they, they do feeding related to children, and they do it through local churches, things like that. Um, that's one, one good place you can check out. Um, it'd be nice to find something local so maybe we can investigate that some more. All right, um, so let's finish up. I know we, we're pretty much out of time, but that's okay because I really did not intend to spend a lot of time on these last ones, partially, mainly because we really have spent time on these in earlier sections. The, the stuff we just covered, I think, was newer in terms of we hadn't spent as much time talking about that. But the, the next two sections are pretty short. So a people that realizes all belongs to God. We've kind of already been hammering that home, but verses 19 through 23 uh, um, verse 19 begins this way. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd, of your flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd. And it goes on and on. And we've already looked at this idea of the firstborn and what they're supposed to do with that. I think the principle I'm just going to pull out of that relatively quickly is essentially what's being said is everything belongs to God because the firstborn giving was to picture that everything after this belongs to God too. But we're going to give him the first and the best. No blemish right? And the prophets will pick up on that later too. Malachi will talk about it. He, you know, here you are, you're bringing all of your blemished animals to God as if he doesn't see and doesn't care. Stop bringing all that stuff. That's an offense to God. He's told you what your attitude should be, and you think you can trick God and keep the best for yourself, right? Um, but if we realize everything belongs to God, again, I think that reinforces a cheerful, generous giving. Um, the last section is a remembering and rejoicing people. If the people are living before the face of God and they know it, they are remembering God and his grace and they are rejoicing because of that. And specifically, it's tied to their calendar. They have rhythms in their calendar that allow for this remembering and rejoicing. Let's just read the last verses here, um, Deuteronomy 16, 16 through 17, because this summarizes the verses that go before it. This is kind of the summary of what you would get if you read those earlier verses. Um, which I encourage you to do. You can go read them. Um, verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the feast of unleavened bread, and he also Passover is included in that. At the feast of weeks and at the feast of booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So again, we see it ending with the idea of blessing. Um, so they have these, these feasts, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, and 29 go more in depth on these, um, these festivals. We've already talked about them when we covered those passages. But real quick, Passover and Unleavened Bread is covered in verses 1 through 8. It's March-April time frame. Um, this remembers the deliverance from Egypt, right? Passover, the firstborn. This ties into the firstborn we just looked at. But God kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians that are not fearing him. They won't put blood over the door, right? Um, and then he, he protects the people of Israel as they put door, blood over their door. Um, the unleavened bread, that's connected to that as well, right? The, the bread does not have time to rise. They don't do that as they leave because they're leaving in such haste. <clears throat> so that's one thing. They're remembering God's redeeming work. Um, weeks is the other one, verses 9 through 12. Uh, later on, that, the, another name gets attached to that as well. It's called Pentecost. That really just comes from the idea that it says, you shall count seven weeks, or essentially it talks about 50 days. And so Pentecost is the idea of 50 days later. So this is after 50 days after this time frame, um, uh, this kind of Passover unleavened bread time frame. It corresponds with uh, when they first start harvesting the, the grain is what happens here. So at the end of, of that time frame, essentially, they are to uh, give free will offerings with joy towards God. Um, talks about joy in here somewhere. Anyway, you can go find it. So, um, uh, verse 11 maybe. Yeah, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, right? Uh, booths comes um, later. We see that in September, October. The summer harvest is coming to an end. Fruits like dates, grapes, and olives. So again, it's a time of thankfulness to God. Um, part of the booths thing seems to be remembering when they were dwelling in tense essentially in the wilderness and God met their needs there. So there's, uh, there's this remembering um, and rejoicing because at the end of the section on booths in verse 15, it says, uh, so that you will be altogether joyful. So again, you're seeing this idea of rejoicing before the Lord repeated over and over again. So that's what we see here. And I, I would just encourage you application from that. Are we under all these festivals? No, we're not under all these festivals. I think we should, we can learn from them. They point us to Christ but I, I think it could be a good application of, do we have rhythms 
of remembrance and joy before the Lord for the grace he's shown us in Christ who is the fulfillment of all these things. Do we? Yes. Sundays, that should be a rhythm, right? In the schedule. Um, Other times where we reflect on the incarnation, we reflect on the resurrection. Um, You may even build into your own family structure in lifetime rhythms of remembering God's goodness, of rejoicing before the Lord. You may do it with birthdays. You may do it with certain celebrations in your family life, like adoption days or whatever, right? Where you, you're somehow celebrating these things as remembrances of what God has done and with joy. So I just encourage you to think about that in your own family life um, without becoming legalistic about it, but come up with, you know, what, what are ways we can remember and rejoice in the Lord? So as we wrap it up here, we see that Israel is supposed to be set apart from the pagans. Um, they are to be God's people, holy, set apart to him, not like the pagans. Um, they're going to be um, experiencing provision, abundant provision from God. And so they are to be generous hearts. If you're living before the face of God who is generous towards you, that should elicit generosity from your heart. That's true for them. It should bring about a willingness to forgive debts and trust God with the losses that come from that, that he will provide. It's a time to celebrate and have joy and even mark that in your calendar. That is true for Israel. So yes, it looks different for us in the new covenant, but we are still a holy people set apart to God. That still should characterize us. We too have a generous abundance and should cheerfully give. Um, We too can trust God's uh, forgiveness of us by forgiving others when they sin against us. And we too can build life rhythms around remembering and celebrating God's redeeming and sustaining work. I'm going to close by reading a short thing from R.C. Sproul again on Coram Deo. He says, the Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. This means that if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, homemaker, um, quorum, quorum Deo, in a quorum Deo way before the face of God, then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. So please don't mishear that as, good, I don't have to share the gospel. The point is you're living as a Christian before the face of God, and you can do that while you're doing your homemaking, attorneying, whatever it is which will include the gospel shining forth, the gospel speaking forth. But it's not just the moments that you speak the gospel that are before the face of God. Everything is. And so kind of all these principles we looked at and more, if we live before the face of God, should be surfacing out of our hearts, through our mouth, through our lives, and everything that we do, right? So let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for um, your word. Thank you for the way that you have uh, taught us so much, even from uh, the ways you've dealt with Israel. And, um, and as we look even into the new covenant, we see the ways that you deal with us as your new covenant people in Christ. And we pray that we would, um, as we're richly supplied by you, that we would be joyful, that we would be generous, that we would be trusting you, um, that we would be willing to forgive, uh, that we would be separating from um, unrighteousness and seeking to live holy lives humbly before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.